A bright beam of light zipped across the night sky over the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. Those who bore witness to it froze in their tracks, horrified by what they were seeing. To them, it was an omen of impending doom, a warning of sorts that was sent to them by their gods. No sooner had the Emperor, Moctezuma II, seen it did he send for his high priests to interpret its meaning. Scientists and astronomers now know that it was likely Halley's Comet, which in 1517 passed relatively close to Earth's orbit. But to the Aztec, it was a great cause for concern. Upon completing the necessary rituals, the priests presented their reading to the Emperor. It was, in fact, a warning sign, one that meant the imminent destruction and ultimate end of the great civilization they had worked so hard to build. By pure coincidence, at the same time, miles away on Mexico's Atlantic coast, reports began spilling in of strange objects out at sea. The various indigenous populations had never seen anything like them before, and were later described to the Aztec as, quote, mountains that move on water, unquote. The bizarre apparitions were, in fact, galleons, massive wooden sailing ships used by the Spanish, who had arrived in the New World to extract the rich gold and silver deposits they'd heard about from the likes of Columbus and other such European explorers. Two years later, these two powers would meet for the first time, eventually leading to one of the most epic clashes in world history. What led up to the fateful meeting between the Aztec and the Spanish? What happened when they met? And what became of the mighty Aztec civilization following Spanish colonization? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, the former Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan is known by a different name, Mexico City. With a population of some 21.7 million people, it was built, in the years following Spanish conquest, over the ruins of that great city. As such, construction and urban expansion often yield rich and extensive archaeological finds, but perhaps the biggest ongoing excavation site can be found right smack dab in the heart of the bustling metropolis, beneath what's now known as the Zócalo, or massive central plaza, located in Mexico City's historic center. Here, archaeologists work tirelessly to unearth what's considered to be the largest and most impressive Aztec structure, the Templo Mayor, or main temple in Spanish. This edifice, which once served as the religious center of Aztec society, was a gargantuan step pyramid with twin shrines at its summit, both of which were dedicated to two chief Aztec deities, Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc, the gods of war and rain, respectively. Here, captives of war and other unfortunate victims were brought and were ritualistically sacrificed, their hearts ripped out of their chests while still alive. It was one of the more violent and bloody practices in human history, to be sure, but the Aztec themselves had a reputation for being rather violent and bloody at times. The people we now know as the Aztec did not, in fact, refer to themselves as such. That moniker was bestowed upon them years later by historians, who, drawing upon the oral history of this indigenous culture, placed their origins in Acitlan, a region in northwestern Mexico that, according to tradition, was their ancestral homeland. Therefore, Aztec refers to people of Acitlan. It's believed that sometime in the 13th century, the ancestors of the Aztec, who referred to themselves as the Mexica, from which Mexico gets its name, began wandering further south. Guided by the aforementioned god of war, Huitzilopochtli, the Mexica were told to seek out an island in the middle of a vast lake where an eagle rested atop a cactus. It was there that they would be destined to build their new home. So it was that, in around 1325, they ventured into the Anahuac Valley in central Mexico, a sort of highland plateau surrounded on all sides by mountains and volcanoes. 
There they found an immense lake, Teshkoko, and on a small island in its center saw an eagle perched atop a cactus with a serpent in its beak. If this symbol seems familiar, one need only look to the Mexican flag. It was here, in a place that they would call Tenochtitlan, that the Aztec began forging a mighty civilization. Despite the fact that this tiny island in the middle of Lake Texcoco was predestined to belong to the Mexica by Huitzilopochtli, it seemed to offer little in the way of advantages at first. For starters, much of it was swampy and could scarcely accommodate a sizable population for posterity. As we know from many of the great civilizations throughout the world, waterways usually served as the life's blood for the earliest permanent settlements. Sumer had the Tigris and Euphrates, Egypt had its Nile, China had its Yellow River, Rome had the Tiber. The Aztecs, though surrounded on all sides by water, must have stood on the shores of Lake Texcoco and wondered how this remote and desolate place could possibly serve as their new homeland. But humans have proven, time and again, to be an innovative and enterprising species. Determined to live up to Huitzilopochtli's prophecy, the Aztecs merely build up the island. In a series of engineering feats and marvels rivaled only by Rome half a world away and several centuries prior, they piled mud and decaying plants atop one another to create small, stationary islands known as chinampas. By building several hundreds of these chinampas, they not only doubled the size of their land, but were also able to grow and harvest crops such as maize, squash, beans, and tomatoes, among others. This proved vital in feeding their rapidly increasing population, which continued to grow through conquest of neighboring tribes and peoples. To bring fresh water to the island, they constructed an aqueduct whose source, a place called Chapultepec Springs, was located just south of the city. In addition, great causeways and bridges connected the island with the surrounding mainland, allowing traders and merchants to travel to and from the capital. A series of canals, too, were dug to join the city's disparate neighborhoods and districts together into a single, unified conglomeration. These canals have since become so famous and renowned that historians have given Tenochtitlan the nickname the Venice of the Americas. By the early 16th century, the Aztec Empire had grown considerably, stretching all the way from the Pacific in the west to the Gulf of Mexico in the east, and as far south as present-day Guatemala. By that time, their capital had grown to accommodate a population of roughly half a million inhabitants, and their sovereignty was largely comprised of three powers, a triple alliance of sorts made up of the former independent city-states of Tenochtitlan, Tlacopan in the west, and Texcoco in the northeast. Ruled over by the mighty Moctezuma II, the reigning monarch at the time, the Aztecs were at the height of their power and military might. But by 1517, following the sighting of Halley's Comet, rumors began spreading of foreign beings that had landed on the empire's east coast. Little did the Aztecs suspect, however, that the stranger's arrival in their country would mark the beginning of the end of their chapter in history. These strange beings were, of course, the Spanish, who had arrived to lay claim to the New World and its spoils for the King of Spain. Led by Hernán Cortés, an explorer and conquistador, literally conqueror, this particular venture was the first in a series of waves that would ultimately subjugate and later consolidate the various lands of Central and South America under Spanish colonial rule throughout the remainder of the 16th and into the 17th centuries. Having made landfall in what's now Veracruz in eastern Mexico, Cortés employed the help of an Aztec woman named Malintzin, better known by her Spanish moniker, La Malinche, to act as an ambassador between various indigenous tribes, serve as translator, and later to become his wife. Through her, the conquistador was able to convince several Aztec satellite states to join him in his endeavor to topple the empire. As it turned out, the natives didn't need that much convincing. By the time of Cortés's arrival, the Aztecs were demanding high amounts of tribute from some of their more ambivalent subjects. Given the opportunity to raise hell against their overseers was too tantalizing to pass up. 
From his arrival in 1517 to his advance towards Tenochtitlan in early 1519, several alliances were made between the Spanish and their indigenous supporters, one of the more notorious being a member of the Triple Alliance, Texcoco. Finally, on November 8, 1519, Cortés, his men, and a confederation of native allies arrived in the Aztec capital, where they were greeted on one of the causeways by Moctezuma himself, along with his attendants and a bevy of Aztec citizens who were eager to watch the exchange. From the get-go, there were tensions as well as communication issues all around. For starters, Cortés made the grave error of trying to embrace the monarch, which was strictly forbidden. Visibly unfazed by this, however, Moctezuma shrugged it off and offered the conquistador a featherwork flower fashioned out of the lush and colorful plumage of the native Quetzal bird. A gold necklace encrusted with jewels and precious stones was also part of the greeting gift, along with a garland of flowers. To add insult to injury, the Spanish had brought nothing in return to offer the emperor or his attendants. This was seen as a sign of disrespect and considered a slap in the face for their kindness. Regardless, Moctezuma invited Cortés and his men to his palace, where they would be his honored guests. According to contemporary Spanish accounts from the event, the city of Tenochtitlan was not only impressive, but immense. Many of the men who later recalled seeing it for the first time thought it to be a dream, a visual trick of the light, for it seemed to rival the great cities of Europe at the time in both size and population. For example, it was reported that it, quote, dwarfed Seville, unquote, and boasted a population that equaled that of Naples and Constantinople. The neighborhoods were connected by a series of walkways and canals that were easily navigable. In the center of the city was a vast public market where people from all over the empire could barter and trade for goods using cocoa beans, the Aztecs' most prized and precious commodity, so rare and valuable that it was used as currency. Above it all rose what the Spanish themselves dubbed the Templo Mayor, the very same step pyramid with twin shrines dedicated to Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc, respectively, and 114 steps which stood a whopping 197 feet, 60 meters above the ground. The Templo Mayor served as the undisputed religious center not just for the capital, but for the entire empire. Moctezuma's palaces, with their many rooms and quarters, were located stone's throw away from this vast temple complex, and it's here that he led Cortés and his men. While staying in the adjoining palace of Ashayakat, Moctezuma's father and predecessor, the Spanish discovered the hidden room where the emperor kept his treasures. According to accounts, it was filled to the brim with, quote, a quantity of golden objects, jewels and plates and ingots, unquote. One Spaniard, hungrily eyeing the trove, later recollected that, quote, the sight of all that wealth dumbfounded me, unquote. As a side mission, Cortés and his men began plotting how they would loot the priceless objects and send them back to Spain. As you can see, they were off to a great start. But the tensions and misunderstandings didn't end there. Sometime into their stay, Cortés rather disrespectfully asked Moctezuma if he could place a cross along with an image of the Virgin Mary atop the imperial altar dedicated to the Aztec deities Huichilobos, the god of war and human sacrifice, and Tezcatlipoca, another god of war as well as of the winds. Naturally, the monarch and his priests were appalled by this prospect. For the first time since their meeting, the emperor showed disdain, stating through La Malinche that the idols, quote, give us health and rain and crops and weather and all the victories we desire, unquote. Perhaps this statement was meant to be a warning for Cortés and the Spaniards. In short, don't mess with us. As to be expected, the conquistador didn't heed this warning, and sure enough, Aztec soldiers were dispatched to Veracruz to kill the Spanish who had been left there to watch over the ships. It was this event that single-handedly caused all hell to break loose. To this day, it's unclear whether Moctezuma himself or one of his generals had ordered the attack. Whatever the case, Cortés ended up holding the emperor hostage, and, though the monarch outwardly continued to rule, he had merely become the puppet through which the Spaniard carried out his orders and will. Through May of the following year, 1520, Moctezuma was more or less confined to the palace of Ashayakat. 
Despite being reduced to a figurehead forced to do Cortes's bidding, his overall demeanor was calm and cordial. It's even recorded that, at one point, he stated that he was grateful to be a prisoner. Since either our gods gave us power to confine me or Huichilobos permitted it, he said. Perhaps Moctezuma's behavior may seem out of place or unusual, especially given the fact that Aztec monarchs had garnered the reputation for being both skilled warriors and ruthless leaders. Why, then, would he say such a thing? The answer goes back to the sighting of Halley's Comet three years prior. The priests, upon reading the sign as an omen of destruction, predicted, as foretold in their ancestral tradition, that, quote, men would come from the direction of the sunrise to rule these lands, unquote. Moctezuma likely believed that Cortes and his men were those selfsame beings who had come from the direction of the sun. So strong were the emperor's faith and trust in them that he even pledged allegiance to the king of Spain and made his officials do the same. But the Aztec people weren't as easily misled. Seeing their emperor being tossed around like a ragdoll, forced to do the Spaniards' bidding, was more than they could tolerate. After all, their leader was supposed to be a strong and fearsome warrior, one who would never kowtow to the demands of outsiders. So, when he permitted the Spanish to erect a Catholic altar in the Templo Mayor, alongside the idols of Huitzilopochtli and Tlaloc, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, as the old saying goes. When he appeared on the steps of the palace to address his people shortly after paying tribute to the Spanish king, the people rose rose up and assassinated him, hacking him to death with obsidian clubs and other such weapons. In the chaos that ensued, the Aztec rose up against the Spanish. Cortes and his men were greatly outnumbered, a situation that, under other circumstances, might have led to a different outcome, in other words, that the Aztec would have emerged victorious over these foreign invaders. This, however, was not the case. With the Spaniards' advanced artillery, which included gunpowder and cannons, they were able to swiftly annihilate any and all opposition. Drawing the Aztec armies out onto the causeways, the Spanish and their indigenous allies attacked by sea, or in this case lake, as they had fashioned battering rams to bring the structures down and used cannon fire to pick off the enemy like flies. As if that weren't enough, an epidemic of smallpox, a disease completely foreign to the Aztec, spread throughout the besieged city of Tenochtitlan. Thousands died, wiping out a sizable chunk of the population without the use of firepower. Even Moctezuma's successor, Emperor Cuitlahuac, ultimately succumbed to the disease and passed away. Thus, governorship over the empire fell onto the shoulders of one Cuauhtémoc, Moctezuma's cousin, though his reign would not only prove short, but also in vain, as he was eventually captured by the Spanish and forced to surrender on August 13, 1521. After nearly two centuries of prosperity, the mighty Aztec Empire fell. As you might expect, Cortés and the Spaniards wasted no time in erasing any trace of Aztec rule over Tenochtitlan and the surrounding areas. The city, which had suffered considerable damage during its year-long siege, was completely transformed and reconfigured into what Cortés himself supposedly dubbed Ciudad de México, Mexico City, the political seat of the colony of New Spain that was born out of the conquest. The formidable Templo Mayor was torn down brick by brick, the stones of which were rebuilt into a massive church, the Metropolitan Cathedral of the Assumption of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven, which stands in the exact spot of the temple itself in what's now Mexico City's Centro Histórico, or Historic Center. The Emperor's palaces, too, were completely destroyed, and Moctezuma's gold treasures were all melted down and cast into several gold bars that were sent back to Spain. The famed canals, which the Spanish marveled over when they beheld them for the first time, were all filled in and built over. The only one left, an area of the current city known as Xochimilco, is a stunning reminder of the genius of Aztec engineering. Needless to say, little is left above the surface of Tenochtitlan or its former glory, but the glimpses into its storied past can still be seen from time to time with each new construction site or groundbreaking. 
As for the Aztecs themselves, they were absorbed into a unique hybrid culture that emerged in Mexico following the Spanish conquest. Known as mestizo, from the Spanish for mixed or blended, it drew upon elements of Spanish heritage combined with those of the indigenous Mexica. To this day, many Mexican citizens identify with both their native Aztec heritage as well as the Spanish traditions that were introduced following the fall of Tenochtitlan. This can perhaps best be seen in the Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead holiday, that's celebrated annually from October 31st through November 2nd. Combining the Spanish Catholic All Souls Day with the traditional Mexica death rites, it perfectly exemplifies this hybrid culture and offers a fascinating glimpse into the disparate backgrounds that would become the basis for the Mexican national identity. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed embarking on this journey with me to what is, in my opinion, the most fascinating civilization of the Americas. 2021 is winding down, and I can scarcely believe that the year has flown by. Only three more episodes left for the year. I do so hope you'll stick around. If you like this podcast and wish to support me to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Remember to listen and share as well, as they also help me in big ways. Thank you so much for your continued support, and be sure to tune in next week for another enlightening episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week. <laughs>